0: This episode of Navara FM was made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navara Media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, and help us build people-powered media. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. My name is Richard Hames, and you're listening to Navarra FM. What changed when history ended? The promise of those halcyon days at the end of the Cold War was not just about the end of a geopolitical conflict. A new sense of possibility opened up for people around the world. In the UK, Blairism brought with it a sense of change and a washing away of the old stuffy social hierarchies. If you had been born on the wrong side of the tracks, that no longer mattered. Because we now lived in an era of social mobility. Or maybe that's not quite how it happened. As socialism turned into progressivism, something also was lost. Lindsay Hanley is one of Britain's most perceptive writers on the politics and culture of class. Her two books, Estates and Respectable, are enormously sensitive to the mental worlds of class as much as they explore physical environments that give people their identities. In this episode, in our special series on CLASS here on Navarre FM, Lindsay Hanley and Juliette Jakes discuss the experience and recent history of CLASS in all its rich complexity. What was it like to experience social mobility, and not simply ponder it as a phrase in a policy document? Along the way, they talk about autodidacticism, as well as the impressions that journalists sometimes try and do of ordinary people.
1: What is social mobility? Although the term feels like it emerged from Blair-era focus groups, the writer Lindsay Hanley suggests it's not simply a replacement for ideas of class solidarity, but even if it intended to open up new experiences for people from working class and lower middle class backgrounds, and in certain cases did so, it also eroded the basis of cultural democracy. What kind of society did that leave us with? In this episode of Navarra FM, I speak to Lindsay Hanley, author of Estates and Respectable Crossing the Class Divide about some of the culture that inspired her, from the theorists Richard Hoggart and Raymond Williams, through to the Manic Street Preachers and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. We also talk about the reorientation of the education system, away from creativity and towards information processing, as well as increasingly precarious conditions for artists, and what Mark Fisher called the wounds of class. Hi, Lindsay. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Juliet. Uh, thanks for asking me to um, come and talk to you today. I think
1: we'll just we'll just start off with uh, with respectable. So maybe we could just sort of tell us um, when it was published and uh, why you wrote it, and and maybe something of, of the personal aspects of the book. I think are really interesting.
2: Yeah, um, respectable was my second book. I wrote a book about council estates and about my experience of growing up on council estates in the late 2000s. That was 2007. And then it took me years and years and years to write respectable for a variety of reasons. Um you know, some practical reasons and some just kind of, you know, I knew I wanted to write a book about class and I wanted to write a book about you know my experiences of social mobility in inverted commas. <laughs> um, oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, social uh, and sort of geographical mobility, and it just seemed like too big a subject, and it terrified me, and um, I really, really struggled with it. Even though I sort of knew it was possible, but I think one of the one of the weird things about social mobility is that you're always casting around for prior examples. Because it feels, it feels like quite um, uh, a, a traumatic experience and you're not quite sure why, but you're also vaguely aware that there's quite a lot of literature about it. Because I think a lot of people who move into writing from working class backgrounds almost always feel weird about it for, for whatever reason. And so I knew that there was some... Sort of antecedents, uh, sort of thing. So I did a huge amount of reading and eventually, (laughs) eventually managed to get it out. And it came out in 2016, I think about a month before the EU referendum. So it was like it it all just sort of seemed a bit vaguely pointless after (laughs) once that came out because the conversation had entirely changed. But um, yeah, I was really, really motivated to write a book about class, I think, because I realized that, that that the that the estates book was a book about class, but sort of you know through the prism or through the lens of of, of council housing and books that had made an enormous impact of me on me, sorry, uh, over the years, you know it included things like the uses of literacy by Richard Hoggart, which I only uh, which I think I was introduced to by the Manic Street preachers not not directly obviously they're not close personal friends but found out about the uses of literacy and Raymond Williams and things through you know being a massive Mannix fan in my late teens and really I sort of revisited there's a section in the states where I talk a lot about about the Pet Shop Boys about my lifelong love of the Pet Shop Boys and how they were sort of my main vehicle for education for for my autodidactism (laughs) Uh, and I've sort of Go into that to quite a bit more detail in respectable. Like basically, um, I learnt more from pop stars than I learnt from books. Uh, no, no, I learnt more from pop stars. Than I learnt from school, basically. <laughs>
1: yeah, you and me both. To be
2: honest.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the Mannix, uh, yeah, had a huge effect on my um, sixth form reading, you know, Plath, Pinter, Miller, Mailer. Uh, that's just one song. Um, so, yeah, let's um, let's dig, dig a bit deeper into the book then. And we'll come back to sort of autodidacticism and... Mm-hmm pop music and Mm. um, certain types of literature a bit later, because I want to sort of thread um, some questions about cultural democracy and the gentrification of the arts through the show. Yeah. But I think I'd like to just sort of start and just wind back some of the other stuff you've just talked about there. So one of the things that really stood out to me is you talk about sort of personally experiencing this transition from an industrial society to a knowledge-based society. So I wonder if you could just maybe just explain a bit more of that for the business. Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was vaguely aware as I started writing the book in my, in my early 30s that, that I'd experienced something that was generational, which was um, essentially a huge expansion of higher education but it was a huge expansion of higher education that wasn't quite for the um, the motives and the purposes you might hope for, sort of thing, you know. You know, I've, I've gone to primary and secondary school on the estate where I grew up and that was, you know, that was its own experience, a very sort of self-contained and, um, you know, um, <laughs> in many ways, very distressing experience, you know, in the context of, thatcherism and lack of resources and the kinds of things that the kids my age were going through at home just 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 the horror of it really Um, but then uh, in 1992 when I was 16 I I, um, got a place at a sixth form college in a much posher part of of Solly Hall where where I was from and it, it suddenly became standard and understood that you would go to university regardless of whether you were from you know sort of the right or wrong side of the tracks kind of you know if, if you'd reach this point then you would be going to university and you know it, equally it was understood that that, that labor would be forming the next government you know and um this would have enormous consequences for people from particularly i think from lower middle class you know sort of uh, you know the right kind of working class backgrounds you know the kind of respectable working class backgrounds you know they were going to be given all the or you know all the all the help that they needed to sort of realize this new sort of modern progressive society that that, that tony blair was advancing although uh, i do say to, i do say tony blair actually but uh john smith was the leader of the labor party when i was at sixth form college and i'll never forget that Find when we found out that he died, because it, it it seemed like this, you know, absolutely monumental thing. But of course, it, it, it sort of changed. It changed sort of political history and changed what we experienced in ways that we could never have foreseen. Obviously, because it because it meant that Tony Blair very quickly became leader and changed everything around him. But yeah, uh, you know, I, I got to London in 1994 to go to university, and it was the first generation. Where you know, sort of, you know, I think even then, at least half of us were women. We're young women going to university, basically doing the things that that, that our moms probably wanted to do and never got the chance to do. You know, in the midst of this kind of, um, you know, Britpop, Britpop nonsense. I was, I was just, I was saying to, my, I was saying to my husband over the weekend. I was saying, like, yeah, God, I'd really like to write about this time, but you know, just sort of like. And then we went down to the Dublin Castle to see Catatonia, supported by Marion just doesn't oh, have the Greece, same ring. As yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was going down CBGBs in 1975. You know, <laughs> so uh, I'm showing me age there, but yeah. So, 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 getting to London at a time where where London just seemed to be on the cusp of you know another sort of very exciting and sort of democratizing time. You know, you had the 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 blur oasis battle of blur and oasis so the middle class versus northern working class you know where you're going to support blur Were you going to support oasis in mm. the child char- wars and all of, all of this kind of stuff was fantastically excited to me as an 18 as an 18 year old arriving in london and thinking oh my god yeah i've surrounded the class divide this is all fantastic you know the the, the rest of the rest of our lives is all going to be fantastic you know oh, oh and by the way history just ended as well so we don't have to worry about anything it just all seemed easy but too easy, you know, and then it all sort of started dawning on me that that, that not nearly as much had changed as, our, as, as as we were being led to believe had changed.
1: Well, I think, you know, that and uh, you evoking this sort of Britpop era and uh, the ascension of Tony Blair, who, mm-hmm. you know, of course, we're all big fans of here on uh, Navarra FM, um Let's talk a little bit about this this idea of social mobility and its currency in the, the 90s and in the Blair era. Mm. And I sort of bring this up partly because, you know, for me, I mean, I, you know, talk a bit about my own class background shortly, although we've done it on some of the other shows. You know, I always sort of bracketed social mobility in with this sort of Blairite lexicon, this, you know, seemingly quite focus group language where, you know, in a sort of age of mass media, but not 24 hour media, and not social media. Yeah, the Blair government developed a certain set of terms to in some ways, I think, mask their true intentions. So, you know, when Blair talked about modernizing, often that meant privatizing. When Blair talked about, you know, being progressive, this was a sort of rhetorical slip away from socialism and replacing socialism with something that was much more kind of nebulous. Obviously, you know, socialism is a term that's been up for like huge historical debate, but you know, progressive is deliberately you know, has a far smaller set of reference points for a, for a concrete meaning. Uh, and I always put social mobility in with that. It was basically a sort of a, a, you know, a substitution for class solidarity and class advancement. In Respectable, you know, I'm interested in the way you talk about this and you you say, no, actually, it's more complicated than that. So I wondered if you'd like to maybe just sort of, you know, unpack that a bit or think about it a bit more. Yeah. Uh, with us. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Well, I think the idea of being socially mobile was kind of elided in my mind, certainly around that time, you know, sort of going through this sort of um, terrible kind of culture shock at sixth form college and then going to university. It was all kind of, it was all bound up with um, what it meant to be aspirational sort of thing. And to be aspirational in my mind, I think, had been more to do with, you know, being free to you know, wander down Carnaby Street dressing like David Bowie, you know, (laughs) kind of the the, the aspirational aspect was more about sort of coming from quite a grim place and being told that your life is going to be quite grim and then getting to a place of personal freedom and, you know, and, um, you know, being able to dress however you want and, you know, not be slacked off for the type of music you liked. It was all very um, uh, individualistic, I suppose, really. The structural nature of it, I was aware of, but it didn't occur to me, maybe, as being the key element in what makes social, pro- social mobility problematic. It was, more a, it was more a case of, you know, what does it do to the person rather than, you know, what does it do to the society? At the same time, at the same time, I was really aware of the fact of just the manifest unfairness of this situation, this idea that, that in order to sort of, you know, have the life you want, sort of to have the kind of life that that, that middle class young people are sort of raised to regard as normal, you know, self-actualization and remunerative work, remunerative interesting work, high levels of autonomy, all those sorts of things. Those ideas were completely out of reach to us when we were growing up and, and, and going to school in, in Chelmsley Wood, where I was where I was from in the eighties, you know, I mean we were literally told We were literally told, you know, the government you have at the moment is going to, you know, is going to stamp on your heads and it's going to not allow you to have the kind of life that you might dream of, you know. But, but it was all very, it was all very, very caught up. The personal and the, the personal, the structural was all very, very caught up because, you know, not least because, I you know, I was bullied quite badly at school and one of the reasons why I was bullied is because of, I had ideas above my station, you know, and because and I was interested in things that maybe the other kids weren't weren't so into and stuff and I had certain ways of expressing myself. And so, of course, I got a complete cop on about that and thought, wow, God, you know, going oh, I'm going to show them. While at the same time having a very probably quite foggy at the time sort of notion that 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 this all was massively structural and you know kind of psychoso- psychosocial more than you know sort of individualistic. Really. Yeah, let's. I mean, yeah, you
1: used the phrase psychosocial there, and that's that's something I'm I'm really interested in. You know, reading respectable. Something that came to mind was, I don't know if you ever saw uh, Mark Fisher's Wounds of Class project that he did. I mean, it might have just been a social media thing, but basically just invited people to share short anecdotes about, you know, cross-class movement in this ostensibly, you know, socially mobile society. And, And yeah, you know, the sort of psychosocial scars of that. And, you know, me coming from a sort of fairly middle-class background I've been always kind of jokingly but not jokingly describe myself as upper lower middle class but you know there's been plenty of sort of occasions where I've realized that I've had quite a lot of class privilege but also you know plenty of occasions where I've been you know particularly as a result of you know my writing and much like you in in respectable you know being a writer has moved me into certain social circles that are you know way above the um the type of school i went to in particular it's a fairly standard like comprehensive school in um, in surrey you know you use the phrase the wall in the wall in the head in the book which sort of stuck with me um and i wonder if you'd like to maybe just like expand on that a bit and the importance of bringing the personal into accounts of class and how anecdotes can go alongside data to provide sort of insightful and hopefully influential documents of collective experience.
2: Well I mean I mean what you hope with writing personally is that it actually gives it it gives the writing the emotional power to to actually sort of move people and um make people, you know, truly listen to what you're trying to tell them. You know, I do believe that it, you know, it can and sort of should be backed up by um, you know, what what the, you know, whatever, you know, what 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 history tells us, what the data tells us, you know, what 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 Previous documents tell us and, and so on. Um I think I think the two sort of can and should go together, you know. I mean the wall of the, well, the wall in the heads. I write about that in Estates as well, and it's 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 a totally nicked phrase. It's um, a German phrase, um der Maur im Kopf, from the idea that when Germany was reunified. In, in 1990, this idea that uh, East Germans couldn't uh, psychologically kind of get with the programme, mm-hmm. you know, and that we're still mentally inhabiting the East, in spite of, you know, now, you know, having access to all the freedoms, you know, all the freedom and resources of the West, so on. So the demaring cop was that, you know, obviously the walls come down, but it's still there somehow. And this completely resonated with me when I first uh, read about it, because that's what it felt like. Charlesley Wood was like, um, you know, it was a huge 1960s estate, isolated from Birmingham, but full of brummies, obviously. And it was a place that didn't have any actual walls, didn't have any actual borders, you didn't need a passport to get out of Chalmsley Wood. But it may you may as well have done in terms of in terms of the difference in how it was perceived by people who lived outside its invisible boundaries. Uh, you know, how individuals were perceived in it. You know, I mean, I worked, when I was a teenager, I worked at Greg's, the, the, you know, the baker's shop. You know, when I used to be waiting at the bus stop for the bus back to Chalmersy Wood and people would say to me, oh gosh, you don't go, you're not going to that den of iniquity, are you? And it's like, well, yeah, that's where I actually come from. You know, I'm getting more, I can I can hear myself getting more and more from me. <laughs> more and more from me. And I think it's this, I think it's this idea of a a, a geographical place you know, made into a kind of, you know, a kind of uh, a a place of, you know, place of mass dwelling, a really, really classed place of mass dwelling because it's exclusively for for working class and, you know, and some very small number of, you know, kind of lower middle class people, almost all council housing. And that is completely... um, Sort of marked from the beginning by its association with with some, you know by its association with slum clearance with overspill. This idea of overspill, you know, like it's like it's a pan of milk boiled over, you know, something a bit icky, you know. So this idea of the wall in the head, I thought, my gosh, you know, you know, wherever you go, you take yourself with you, and you take the walls with you. It's I think I think in the book I say something like, you know, it's one of those things where. You push the wall and you realise that it's not in fact there. Mm. But it's the perception of it's the perception of the wall being there that stops you even approaching it in the first place. And I'm just absolutely obsessed with that idea, really, that 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 you know you can mentally I suppose it's quite Foucodian, you know, the idea that you can mentally build, mentally build um, you know, classed and experiential walls for yourself without them literally being there
1: yeah absolutely um and yeah you know when you talk about the wall in the head you know often think about the cop in your head and you know Mm -hmm. various other ways in which yes sort of ideology acts on us and yeah convinces us you know through sort of soft power rather than hard coercion to to as you put it not get ideas above your station Mm -hmm. um i think that's an interesting place to move on to talking a bit more about sort of Education, cultural democracy, and the cultural outcome of that—you know, this is this is something long been interested in—and you've already talked about Richard Hoggart and Raymond Williams, and we can think about thinkers like Stuart Hall and uh, and others, who were you know very interested in the project of democratizing culture and education, and you know introducing working class and I think lower middle class people as well to the idea that culture is ordinary literature, film, music, all of these things could be for you as, you know, a consumer and a creator. Mm -hmm. You and I, I think you're six years older than me, but, you know, we have both grown up with uh, access to, you know, lots of really interesting literature, film, pop music that came out of this country in the post-war period, I'd say, you know, from the sort of 60s to the 90s in particular, which often provided sort of interesting politically and formally interesting accounts of working class and lower middle class life and you know interesting expressions of that through through music in particular um so maybe it would nice to talk a bit more about you know any sort of literary works or um you know pop artists uh that you know particularly sort of interested inspired you and maybe you know made you feel that you could smash through this wall in your head as you put it
2: well uh, i think one of the really unfortunate things about getting older I suppose is that you, you you know nostalgia kind of takes you over without you even realizing it and, and the older I get the more um the more emotional I get actually I get about the about the recognition of the sort of the, the, the privileges of having grown up in a specific time and I constantly go back to the same things I constantly go back to things like top of the pop's I was too young to see David Bowie do Starman on top of the pops, but I wasn't too young to see Susie and the Banshees and the Cure and um, the Pet Shop Boys sing songs about just um, about, about the fall of communism and the, you know and the and and, and so. <laughs> <laughs> and so on in the sorry I'm, I'm mentally going off into a complete uh, into a complete reverie now but but I mean I am completely honestly a kid of top of the pops and uh, and also of Smash hits magazine because smash hits would have um articles in there where they would interview all the day's pop stars about uh, whether uh, about whether we should have um cruise missiles stationed in the uk for instance you know at the height of um well
1: you know um the enemy ran an obituary for Jean paul Sartre in 1980. What? Yeah. Um, oh my god! No, that was the too kind of intellectual that. climate that was sort of prevalent at that time. yeah
2: Flaming, eh? but um, no, no th- More things are coming. More things are coming to mind now. I, I write a lot in respect to uh, Frank about the, about the inputs of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Mm, yeah, yeah. In in how I saw things and how I saw um, in multiple ways, actually, because you know the height of Frankie Goes to Hollywood was nineteen eighty four, mm. so the minor strike was going on. You know, we, we read the mirror. We read the mirror in in, in our house, and the, the mirror was very, very taken up with the miners' strike because obviously, loads of miners read the mirror. Yeah. You know, and they talked about industrial relations. You know, as though it was a, a you know a sort of very basic fact of life, and that um, people didn't need to be educated in what unions were for and what union action was for. It was all it was actually part of your life. And then Frankie Goes to Hollywood come along and they are just such a multiplicity of, of things all at once and they are fantastically popular. You know, they're scouse. They're gay. They're, they're, they're you know, full of kink, you know. They wrote a song about nuclear war and they got to number one with all these things. <laughs> they got to number one repeatedly with all these things. They, you know, that. My dad went to Woolies in Chelmsley Wood and he bought the 12. You know, my, my mom and dad were really into pop music. You know, my, my mom and dad are total boomers, total boomers, but really, really into pop music. Um, my dad went and got the 12-inch of Two Tribes, which got to number one in July 1984 or something like that. And um, Paul Morley on the back, Paul Morley had written this, um, you know, extremely detailed dissection of the number of warheads, nuclear warheads stationed at various points in Western Europe. And on the front, on the front of that cover is is a mural, is a mural of Lenin and the workers, and underneath the epithet, "We don't want to die." And you know, I was eight years old at the time. It it was much, much, much too heavy for me to be um, going into, but get into it I did. <laughs> and you know, the idea of this bunch of. Mad- Working class scousers could actually bring the reality well, you, of Armageddon to us. To number one, you bring up Frankie Goes to telly. Hollywood,
1: and it gives me a, a brief opportunity for an aside about one of my favourite things that's ever been created, which is the Frankie Goes to Hollywood video game, <laughs> um, which I had as a child, and you know oh one my of my. You know, there's a variety of sub games in it and one of which was where you could choose to play as either reagan or gorbachev and you just <laughs> had to win a spitting battle against the oh other i always chose gorbachev without really realizing why and I, I stand by that but um yeah i mean frankie i mean yeah of course like several several acts had number one hits about nuclear war i mean the jam going underground i think gets number one yeah, uh, yeah. 99 red balloons by nana as balloons. well i've
2: forgotten um, all about that yeah
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if you've read Simon Reynolds' excellent book about post-punk, Rip It Up and Start Again.
2: I haven't, but I should.
1: The concluding chapter is on Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And he basically places them at the end of this extraordinary flowering that comes out of punk, where, yeah, you know, this, this whole generation of people who've had access to higher education but also um, have been raised in this sort of, you know, cultural democratic tradition of autodidacticism. Uh, So he talks a lot about Marky Smith and the Fall. He talks to um, Cabaret Voltaire, a sort of Sheffield-based, quite electronic, very weird post-punk act, who basically said we didn't talk about politics in our music because there was no need to. We were from like the People's Republic of South Yorkshire. You know, we were from like, you know, working class kind of self-educated, leftist families there was no real need for us to be you know very explicitly political in the way that say like Frank Goes to Hollywood were but reynolds concludes the book with a long chapter on frank goes to hollywood this sort of you know links them back to like malcolm mclaren and this sort of you know very carefully curated like image of the band But also, yeah, the fact that, like you say, they're plugged into like these queer subcultures, these left wing subcultures, and they, you know, emerge at the same time as a movement like, say, lesbians and gays support the minors. You know, I think both you and I, you know, have clung on to this particular musical subculture and the sort of portals it gave us into things like film and literature um, as a way of kind of educating ourselves, um, you know, in a type of kind of politicized counterculture That, you know, secondary school and I think maybe even sixth form, but definitely secondary school education in this country just wouldn't and didn't do. Um, And I do feel I learned far more from like the Smiths and the Manic Street Preachers and the Fall and Joy Division than I learned in, you know, school kind of literature uh, Mm. classes. Um, Certainly got turned on to a lot more through them.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, one thing I'm also aware of though is there was a lot of residues of, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're necessarily from the, you know, the, the, the peak of social democracy, but 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 lived through a lot of the things that had been established. Under and what and what I remember particularly from primary school is how utterly utterly different it was to my own children's experience of primary school now. You know, it was kind of Montessori based, basically, you know, it was about fiddling with plastic, you know, we didn't wear uniforms Mm -hmm. to go to school, you know, it was fiddling about with plasticine. My year two infant teacher uh, used to go on holiday to Yugoslavia and Russia in the early 80s, which I think tells us something about what her affiliations were, (laughs) Um, you know, and we were regularly taken out of lessons to do things like, um, you know, learn a musical from scratch, you know, so it was about performance. Mm. It was about performance. It was about um, sort of, you know, this sounds really, really cheesy and probably I'm romanticizing it, but, but you know, about mind expansion really and about and about sensory experience. So much of it was about sensory experience and about the joy of sensory experience. Whereas from, you know, from my, uh, you know, seeing the current experiences of primary school through, through my children's eyes, it's about information absorption, and, you know, that that does that does mark, you know, quite fundamentally that trans- transition that you were talking about, you know, from really a making society to a, a knowledge consumption society, you know, and their experience of, of school is entirely about information absorption, mm. you know, and, and it's it's not about sensory experience, it's about sensory overload. But
1: also, I think, a society in which, you know, as the knowledge becomes more important and more integral, uh, it's also ring-fenced a lot more and you can... Mm. Uh, I often think about, you know, what was being shown on, say, like BBC television up until the early 90s. And, I you know, when I was on Twitter, would frequently post kind of lists of what BBC Two had shown in a given month. And it was pointed out to me that, you know, a lot of the open university programming, as well as a lot of the sort of, you know, more intelligent, say, like European documentaries that would be shown or the programming about new you know, music or film or drama or ballet or opera or literature, whatever, a lot of that disappears from free-to-view television around the same time as um, tuition fees are introduced and student loans replace grants. And there's, you know, economic ring fencing of knowledge. And I think it might be interesting to just talk here a little bit about a specific exhibition in London recently that's caught both of our attention. Uh, I wrote about it for freeze and you came down from Liverpool to see it, which was a an exhibition at the Raven Row Gallery uh, called People Make Television. And what this was, was just a, um, a screening of the archive of the BBC series Open Door, which ran from about 1973 to the early 90s i think but they showed the first 10 years in which basically the bbc opened as the title suggests uh, a door to members of the public and they could write in and pitch television programs and the bbc would give them a couple of crew members and cameras and like a limited budget and say look you can make whatever you want and some of them made really interesting sort of feature or sort of fiction programs. A lot of them made like campaign films. A lot of them just documented their local area. Uh, and, you know, this shows would be anything from like Stuart Hall and Maggie Steed doing a very thorough analysis of racism and racist tropes in television programming, which, you know, seriously upsets some people at the BBC through to like the transsex liberation groups, like five transsexual women just having a quiet and intelligent conversation um, about you know what their lives are actually like without someone just screaming at them like you know why are you like this justify yourselves um, you know programs about you know um, farming and the challenges of farming through to you know programs about science fiction or you know incredible range of things um, this had plenty of flaws but. You know, I went a couple of times. The programming's very interesting. And notably the cues to get into this exhibition were absolutely around the block. Huge cues to see this. Because I think there was a real interest from people in the idea of a culture that, you know, not only treats people like they're intelligent and able to understand kind of complex ideas and formally innovative stuff. Because a lot of this stuff was formerly very strange. Uh, but you know actually you know was was democratic and open to the public to actually you know make things and you know I wonder I wonder maybe you know what your impressions of that exhibition were were like
2: yeah yeah I mean I found I found that exhibition fascinating I think for the um well for the variety the variety that it displayed but but also I think how incredibly esoteric quite a lot of it Quite a lot of it was. So there were so basically the BBC was giving over some of its, you know, precious <laughs> broadcasting time to all comers and that literally meant they could talk about if they could put a program together they could talk about anything. And one of the ones that I got quite drawn into because it was because it was filmed in Liverpool was the Josephine Butler Society which was a, a, a society set up during the uh late victorian or early edwardian period to um safeguard sex workers at the docks in liverpool judging by the program that, that i watched at, at Raven Row, it did really become a kind of uh, abstinence type society rather than you know rather than make sure sex workers are healthy kind of society <laughs> but i found it absolutely extraordinary that that you know that 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 they could have this lengthy exposition of, uh, you know, of um, quite an obscure public figure uh, about the nature of the issues that they were talking about. They were completely ordinary, untrained people. To, to put it crudely, you know, that they didn't need Stacey Dooley presenting it, you know. <laughs> it, 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 you know, one of the things that, that winds me up horrifically now is this idea that, that the BBC has co-opted the idea of ordinary people. So you can't have literally ordinary people presenting programs or you can't have trained journalists presenting programs. You have to have somebody who has been picked because they are, they, I'm not saying they're not, I'm not saying Stacey Dooley isn't or wasn't an ordinary person to start with, but gives a fantastic impression of being an ordinary person. So, like, reifying the idea of an ordinary person, and this program about a really pertinent and urgent issue will literally not get shown unless it has this person doing doing a really good impression of an ordinary person presenting it. And 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 what Open Door sort of um, what Open Door did was was show a genuine cross section of society. It might have been self-selecting, it might have been partly partly self-selecting, you know, in that, you know, you have to you had to have been, you know, motivated and you had to have had a sense of your own articulously, a sense of your own power, maybe to to even get as far as applying to open door in the first place. Never mind get selected to to to, to have that time. But the idea that it was there as a vehicle for anybody to talk about what they're interested in and also to, to, you know, just, just, just uh, what is this medium for? What is this medium for if it's not for widening the avenues of, of communication, widening the avenues of understanding?
1: Yeah. Um, And it's very notable that the, the exhibition at Raven Row picks that period 1973 to 83 uh, because, you know, you were looking at a time when, you know, by most indexes, the UK is the least unequal it's been in the late 70s. And then there is, you know, very much a project to politically, economically and culturally roll that back uh, and, you know, reintroduce huge levels of inequality. Um, And so we've talked about this sort of education and cultural democracy um, and the flowering of that. And I think we could now to come on to, you know, some of the ways in which that's been rolled back And the conditions that exist now for people who want to make kind of art or culture or, you know, be part of the public sphere, you know, if they're not from wealthy backgrounds. Um, So, again, I think this is, you know, sort of working class and lower middle class people. And, you know, I contributed recently to um, a report called Structurally Fucked published by a group called Industria. Talking about my old radio show Sweet Two One Two, which was on Resonance FM, uh, it's interesting because I always, you know, privately described Sweet Two One Two as like Navara for the arts, and it's kind of gone full circle because, you know, here I am hosting Navara. Navara FM. Uh, I've 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 lived the cultural democratic dream, but you know, here we are. Uh, and one reason I stopped doing Sweet Two One Two, as I talk about in this report, is because I just couldn't find a way of funding it. Um, and it was very much in this tradition of things like the South Bank Show and Arena and things that, you know, in the 70s and the 80s would have been, I think, produced by, you know, a television company or a radio station with the resources to research and, and organize it properly. I'd just like to sort of read uh, a passage by Lola Olafemi in um, Lola's part of the report, because I think it's a really interesting evocation of what it's like to try and do creative work. From outside of a, a wealthy background in the last 10 years or so. And so Lola writes, you know, imagining uh, an artist, well, not imagining, depicting an artist um, in London in the present, saying, like most people, she doesn't like her real job. The story's the same. She sells her labor in exchange for a wage so she can afford to rent a medium sized room in zone four and see what's left over at the end of the month. She will rent forever. She buys the cheap version of everything to save some extra cash. She doesn't smoke, always packs a lunch. She doesn't even want to be an artist. Whatever that means, she just wants this idea to leave. She's never found the time or the resources to make anything of it. She trolls the internet, aimlessly looking for funds, grants, mentorship. Everything's dried up. There are attractive opportunities to work for galleries for free, to buy coffees for artists more famous than she or to be an informal muse who stays quiet about sexual harassment. There are opportunities to work long hours for less than minimum wage to, quote, feed into organisational projects creatively, but never have the chance to develop her own ideas. There are opportunities to display her work on the internet or in the gallery space for free. There are poorly paid diversity schemes offered at art institutions owned by the historical purveyors of genocide. There are opportunities to go to fancy parties and openings and performances where she'll not be able to afford a glass of wine. Um, I mean, I can certainly uh, relate to that. But, you know, one of the, the interesting things in the Industrial Report is they talk about the current arts scene, plural. In the United Kingdom, representing the worst successes of the neoliberal Thatcherite dream, in which each artist is an individual entrepreneur in competition with all their peers. So I think sort of tying that back into what you sort of talked about in Respectable, that, you know, in such a climate, any artist who's brought up, and again, I use artists in its broader sense, you know, musician, writer, filmmaker, you know, even kind of journalists, are brought up in an environment where they're not raised with this incredible sense of, like, entitlement and competitiveness – is you know at a massive sort of cultural and psychological disadvantage in addition to a you know carefully manufactured socioeconomic disadvantage and yeah I just sort of wondered you know I think you had a had a look at the report as well and if you had any more kind of responses to that how much that chimes with your own experience and we'll come on to what's to be done about it in a minute.
2: One of the things that, that strikes me about you know the the art industry or you know the cr- creative industries now is that the notion of doing it yourself is really really delegitimized partly because it's completely impossible but partly because an entire industry you know a very very capitalistic and very very classed industry has grown up around it and huge amounts of that's got to do with partly You know, an unintended consequence, I think of that, probably that sort of like early 80s Channel 4 type of situation you had where radical and sort of, you know, previously sort of like quite marginal sort of art forms got a toehold on, you know, national media and got a huge amount of exposure. And the creators of that then got, you know, quite well known and probably quite wealthy off it. But, but then that was kind of cemented more fully I think uh, in in the Blair area because because Blair and you know and and his cohort recognized that there was enormous amounts of money and enormous amounts of soft power to be milked out of the creative industries you know it And in tandem with that, you've got this huge expansion of higher education. And so you've got people who would, you know, might have left school at 14 or 15 and then completely educated themselves, you know, doing whatever odd jobs they needed to do. Squatting in London, for instance, you know, it's easy to forget that at the end of the 70s, London was basically half empty. And so it wasn't that difficult to find somewhere to live and somewhere to work for absolute pennies. And, you know, the, the 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 ethos of of punk. Um I don't think it was I don't think it was classless, but but it certainly opened up a lot of imaginative avenues for working class kids to think, yeah, actually I can just do it I can just do it myself. All these things got sort of wound down over the course of the eighties and nineties. And and you know, to be in the arts meant you know, to be in, a, you know, really to be in an industry like any other. You know, I think if you if you sort of grow up with, um, I don't know, <laughs> kind of romantic inclinations, you know, or artistic inclinations, there there's a way in which nothing's going to stop you from doing it. But the obstacles in place are just, they're not just grim, they're not just materially grim, you know, they're actually insidious you know, in terms of what you know, what's legitimated and what's you know, and, and what, you know, what being involved in the gallery circuit involves and so on and you know, and what making things for no money involves, not just materially, but spiritually, being expected to make things for no money it goes on. And not not just not just for a bit while you get yourself established, but to do that but to do that for decades. Yeah. You know, is 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 it's, it's it's um spiritually crushing for the people involved in doing it and and it's just completely parasitical on the part of the people who have the money to you know re-establish these these kind of you know these roots of, of of patronage and yeah. patronage and, and you know and the, and the the you know the literal condescension and patronization that comes with patronage
1: yeah and you know the withdrawal of public funding mm-hmm. for institutions and the replacement with philanthropy and you know Particularly philanthropy from big corporations, um, and you know, the type of art that this produces and the type of art that this allows to be shown. I recommend listeners to go and watch uh, Laura Potras's documentary, The Beauty and the Bloodshed, uh, about Nan Goldin, uh, the photographer, uh, and her campaign against the Sacklers funding uh, a lot of um, contemporary art galleries, both in the States and um, in London. and The Sacklers' role in the Oxycontin. Uh, crisis in the US. And yeah, I mean, what you say also brought to mind um, a book I read recently uh, by a writer called Kuba Schrader uh, called The ABC of the Projectariat, where he describes the Projectariat as this atomized group of people doing projects to make a living. Uh, And it's, you know, they're usually but not always self-employed working as artists, curators, critics, academics, writers, technicians, assistants and incredibly easily exploited because they're constantly chasing these intermittent opportunities, which are like jobs, projects, commissions and assignments. And yeah, you know, often do hours of unpaid work, filling in funding applications and doing other admin. In again, this atmosphere designed to foster competition. So, you know, I think at the moment, you know, the type of cultural democracy that maybe we grew up with or sort of grew up grew up with the products of products of, if not, you know, the continued reality of and that, you know, you and I have both written about in different places is not in a healthy state. So that brings us on to the timeless question of what is to be done. <laughs> it's an audio medium, but uh, Lindsay just made a face, um, <laughs> which I'm not sure I can can describe to you all. But um,
2: It's kind of si- sicky emoji face. Yeah, pretty
1: much. Um, I mean, you know, should we be taking the Labour manifestos of 2017 and 2019 as a starting point? Like, Labour in 2017 promised to maintain free access to national museums and galleries, and establish a, a cultural capital fund to be administered by the Arts Council uh, to improve infrastructure and invest in creative clusters uh, across the UK. As well as, you know, something that really drew me was the um, the Arts Pupil Premium, uh, drawn from an annual budget of 160 million pounds, to ensure that like British students could take part in drama and dance, learn a musical instrument access galleries, museums and theatres and maybe have the more sort of holistic education that you were talking about earlier. Um, and there was quite a lot of joined up thinking there as well. You know, Labour's arts policy also linked into their housing policy um, in particular and their their wider education policy as well. This idea of a national education service and obviously abolishing university tuition fees, um, abolishing universal credit because obviously the dole uh, historically was, you know... Um, a very good way of unofficially subsidizing the arts and you know, sort of opening up the arts and the media, which is, you know, the place where arts and politics meet, I think, or one place where they meet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's hard to say what Starmer's labor will retain. Uh, has made another face, uh, which suggests maybe a lack of confidence in, uh, new, new labor, um, or New Change UK, as I often call them, to um, to retain much from that manifesto. But, you know, there is still this question of which manifesto pledges from that period they'll junk and which manifesto pledges they'll pretend they came up with themselves. And, you know, they, they've already obviously dropped the promise of scrapping tuition fees, which makes me not particularly confident about the rest of it, because it's a fairly crucial plank of that cultural policy, I think. But how do you feel about that as as a starting point?
2: Well, I think what the manifestos in 2017 and 2019 did was take the first steps to the things that we all know actually need to be done which is a complete reconfiguration of the priorities of our society and you know yes it it was backed up by you know we will have these you know we will have certain funds you know to enable arts education and so on and, and and so forth, but but the fact is is that is that all of the things necessary for individual and social flourishing are all interconnected between between taking not just taking care of the basics, the material basics, but but actually uh, making that the philosophical plank of your, you know, of, of, of your program, of your manifesto. I mean, the thing is, it's almost kind of like immaterial whether whether Starmer's Labour is going to retain any of those policies in their manifestos, because what we know is that is the philosophical underpinning has already been completely jettisoned. And without that, without that ph- philosophical underpinning that was, you know, that, that, that was available to us in, in, in its, you know, in really quite a sort of early early form, really... In, in 2017 and, and 2019, without that underpinning, you know, you could give more money to the Arts Council, you could set up arts hubs and, and whatnots. But, you know, if you're still if you're still oriented, if you're still fundamentally OK with society's current orientation towards inequality, towards um, toil, two ends uh, that, that you'll never actually see yourself, you know, to, towards, towards um, money-making and the reification of money-making among a few people, you know, all those things. If you're not going to completely reorientate society, then, um, you know, then, then no amount of um, – sort of specific policy declarations mm. are, are actually going to make a difference.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, I've, I've made a note here about how, you know, we need institutions, commissioners, politicians and commentators to make the case for public funding of arts and culture. But, you know, given the, again, not to relitigate this here, but, you know, the screaming horror at the prospect of a Corbyn government that we got from, you know, most politicians and commentators, during that period and you know particularly people who before 2015 would probably say like why is our culture so anodyne and so boring like what happened to artists who you know kind of take risks and aren't afraid to be weird etc etc and then you know when they were confronted with a sort of policy program that would hopefully you know make much more space for that they just ran away screaming um so i'm not particularly confident about that and instead, maybe it's, it's sort of worth thinking about, you know, as democratic socialism or even social democracy is off the table for now, maybe it's worth being a little bit more sort of speculative or utopian and saying, look, you know, which, which institutions need to be abolished and, you know, what might a classless society look like and how might culture and cultural democracy feed into that?
2: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what a I mean, it's a question
1: you do raise in the book, Lindsay So you've brought this on yourself. Yeah, I brought it on
2: myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's. I think my version of a cluster society looks a lot like Charlotte Church's Forest School in the middle of Wales. Right. I don't know if I don't know, if no, you know tell, about. Tell Charlotte us more Ch- about that. Yeah. Charlotte Church um, is an absolutely heroic person. She uses the money that she's able to make from you know going on the Masked Singer. <laughs> <laughs> on oh, no, ITV, for instance and other things like that to fund um, basically utopian democratic educational community in a forest in mid Wales can't remember where. I think it's in Powys somewhere um, she basically runs a sort of it's a it's a physical school but it's mostly outside you know and it's on sort of um, it's on completely democratic you know kind of I suppose sort of Summerhill type of, um, principles where, um, where the the children and the adults, um, you know, confer equally between themselves about, you know, what, what they should prioritize that day, what they should prioritize in their learning, what they actually want to find out about, you know, whether it gets written down or not. For instance, all these things and, you know, the, 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 the overall, the overall aim is to, is to, um, You know, it's kind of, you know, it's like sort of, I get visions of, you know, like Tolstoy, Tolstoy and, you know, all the guys working in the garden, you know, that sort of, it's genuinely utopian and she's actually making it happen, you know. So um, I suppose that, that that really, really speaks to my inner hippie. But in terms of institutions, I mean, it's 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 self-evident. It's self-evident that we shouldn't have a monarchy, and we shouldn't have private schools. I mean, that to me is self-evident. I mean, you know, it's it's you know, archaic and pathetic when it comes down to it. I think I think the the only sort of tools we have as you know humans living in a in a in a well, you know, in a society that that that, that you know relies on you know relies on you know you know mass production of food you know mass production of goods and 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 so on you know to actually make the very very best use of those things so they actually work for us you know and so we do actually all get to have comfortable comfortable lives that are full of enjoyment i think really is 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 to fundamentally democratize um you know the education process the education process and make education about creation about creation about creativity and about and about following your nose
1: yeah and this is a promise that runs through you know marx's early manuscripts about alienation through to the situationist through to punk and uh elsewhere you know this idea that you know not only is capitalism just like unjust and unfair but it's also incredibly boring and that we don't have to live like this and life could be much more exciting and more joyful and more interesting more stimulating and more rewarding maybe that's a good place to leave it yeah <laughs> all right um Lindsay, thank you very much for chatting to me today
2: Thank you. Thank you for asking me.
1: A uh, pleasure, as, as always. I've been your host, Juliette Jakes. Thanks for listening to Navarra FM.
2: Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.